Lucky for me, we're out of Deuteronomy, and we are into a series on the parables for the summer. And so our scripture passage for this morning is the Good Samaritan. It's found only in Luke's gospel. Our passage begins in chapter 10, verse 25. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you are correct. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Traveling this summer? Well, why don't we travel together? It could be fun. I'd like to recommend a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem, the city on the hill, the holy city, the site of the ancient temple, and Jericho, a place where many of the priests of the first century lived. The two cities are only 17 miles apart, so we could walk it. We'll go by foot. Oh, I guess I should tell you. That Jerusalem sits 2,700 feet above sea level, and Jericho sits 800 feet below sea level. So it will be quite a descent on this road. I should also probably tell you uh, that the road is very barren, that it's rocky, that it's rugged terrain, that there's no vegetarian, no vegetation, <laughs> or vegetarians. <laughs> so we will... Uh, not only take our hiking boots for this walk, but we will also take a water bottle. And the road uh, winds a lot. It's hard to tell what's around each uh, bend. It's an ideal place for criminals and robbers uh, to make a living. And so we won't carry our purses. We won't take our wallets. There'll be no souvenir shopping on this trip. Sound fun? Well, it's a far cry from the vacation that I'm planning for myself at the end of this month to Colorado. But I suspect that Jesus did not intend to tell a story of a journey that was like a vacation. But instead, Jesus meant to tell a story that was like a journey of everyday life. Everyday people in everyday life. A reality series of the first century, if you will. And I have to tell you, that the Jews and the Samaritans would make for great reality TV stars because they didn't much like each other. 
the Jews and the Samaritans. You see, they each thought that they possessed, they, they possessed the promise that had been handed down to them uh, that was first made uh, by God with Abraham and Moses. And they each believed that the other's misunderstanding of God was so great that it was offensive. And they each mistreated one another. Now, some of the accounts of their mistreatment of one another are quite humorous. There is an account that said that the Jews of Jerusalem had to stop signaling the new year by using signal fires, smoke signals, because the Samaritans knew what they were doing and they would start fires on their own to try to confuse things. But other accounts are not quite as funny. There are times when their mistreatment of one another would lead to violence. The rabbis taught uh, that it was probably the Samaritans who led to Isaiah's death. And Josephus tells us that in the year 9, some Samaritans came into the Jewish temple during the Passover one night, and they put bones all over the place, desecrating the temple. Josephus also tells us that in the year 50, there was a group of Galilean Jews traveling from the north Galilee to the south of Jerusalem, and they passed through a Samaritan village, and as they passed through the village, they were attacked by the villagers, and many of them were killed. And so a group of Jews from Jerusalem decided to avenge their death. They went to the village, they sacked the village, and they burnt it to the ground. They had a strong distaste for one another, the Jews and the Samaritans. So the Samaritan in this story, his character has a lot of shock value. He's quite a surprise. Not only would the Jews have disliked the Samaritans, but as they listened to this story that Jesus told, it just doesn't follow the pattern. See, there's a predictable pattern of characters in this story. There's a priest, then there's a Levite, and the next character you would suspect would be an Israelite. And much like if we were to hear a story about a bishop and then a pastor, we would think, oh, it's a lay person, it's your regular Christian, they're really the faithful one, they're going to do the right thing. But that's not the case at all. There's no Israelite in this story. Oh, I misspoke. Yes, there is an Israelite in this story. He's on the road. Most scholars believe that the man who lies half dead on the road is a Jew. And Ellsworth Callis, I think, rightly says that the man on the road would not have been all too happy about the help that he would have received from the Samaritans. Ever heard the phrase, I'd rather be dead than... Well, it's probably true that the man on the road was thinking, I'd rather be dead than be helped by a Samaritan. But see, the question uh, that this parable poses, that this story poses to the expert on the law is, if a Samaritan can act like that, if a Samaritan can show mercy, what can you do? You, one of the chosen, you who say the Shema twice daily, Can you live out the Shema? See, I found this week as I studied this passage that this parable poses a series of questions. And in fact, the text begins with questions and it ends with questions. And maybe we'll find as we study the parables this summer that any good parable poses good questions. I'm not sure, but what I do know is that this particular text is full of questions. Now, is the an excellent way and a very rabbinical way to teach. 
The rabbis often responded to questions with a question because it it allowed the person who was asking the question to guide the conversation and to own the knowledge that would be gained. We hear in this story that the expert in the law asks Jesus, how can I, what do I need to do? How can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies with a question, what does the law say? How do you read it? The expert in the law replies with the Shema, but then follows with another question. Who is my neighbor? Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that question asked of Jesus, I want Jesus to give me a detailed description. I want to take out my notepad and my pencil and and write down exactly who is my neighbor. Okay, my neighbor is one of the covenant people. My neighbor is someone who's righteous. My neighbor is a widow. My neighbor is an orphan. My neighbor... somebody I can trust. My neighbor is somebody who can do something good for me in the future. But no, that's not Jesus's response. Jesus's response is the one who's the neighbor in this story is the Samaritan. And if the Samaritan can act mercifully toward one who has fallen at the hands of robbers, what are you to do? You see, I think that overarching question of this scripture passage is, Who are you anyway? Who am I anyway? What kind of person are you? Are you the kind of person who thinks the faith, who knows what they believe? Are you also the kind of person who acts out the faith, who lives out the faith, who is there where the rubber meets the road, who not only knows what they believe, but who can live out what they believe in everyday life? I had a very good friend in seminary who was also a very intelligent friend. And I remember going to chapel with her uh, during our first year of studies. And we sat in chapel and we heard this wonderful preacher who was also a professor. She preached so eloquently. Um, Her sermon just fit together so well. And my friend Kim, as we left chapel that morning, said, I'm going to grow up to be her. I'm going to be like her. Well, the next semester, Kim took one of her classes. Two weeks into her class, she said, I do not want to be her. She is mean. <laughs> she, uh, she uses sarcasm to cut down the students in class. Uh, she may preach well, uh, but that, those sermons do not carry over into her class. So how's your classroom is what this question asks. We know what you believe. We know what we believe. How's the classroom of your life? What does it look like? I'm reading a book that was first recommended to me by David, and then Michael and Daryl both recommended it to me as well. So I'm finally starting it. It's called The Tangible Kingdom, and it's by a man named Hugh Halter. And Hugh, in the opening pages, says that one morning he was at Starbucks, and he started a conversation with another man in Starbucks. And the man in Starbucks tells him, I don't much like church. I was raised in the church. I was raised Catholic, but I, I've, I've, I have a distaste for churches now. My wife and I, I both do. And so Hugh asks him this question. What if Christianity was only about finding a group of people to live with who shared openly their search for God and allowed anyone, regardless of their behavior, to seek too? and who collectively lived by faith to make this world a little bit more like heaven, would you be interested? 
And the response of the man in Starbucks was not just a reluctant yes, but it was an enthusiastic, expletive yes. If Christianity were about people who believed just getting together, not to set each other straight, not to tell the rest of the world what they're doing wrong, but just getting together to show mercy towards the world, just getting together to find ways to bring in the kingdom, would it be more in line with what Jesus intended? I believe so. Would it be more attractive to people who are outside of the church? I believe so. I know I'm preaching to the choir on that one. That's the way this church is. There's another question in this parable. Another question that I see in this parable is the question, are you good? And I was helped uh, with this question by John Ortberg a few years ago as he taught on this parable. And you don't see the word good in the parable, but the parable is always referred to as the parable of the good Samaritan. If you look in your Bible, you'll see the words in italics, the good Samaritan. This parable is not referred to as the super Samaritan or the amazing Samaritan, or the incredible Samaritan. Because his actions aren't perfect. His actions are not incredible. He's not a superhero. He's a good Samaritan. What he does is good. He doesn't give the man on the road uh, his donkey. He doesn't take the man on the road out shopping for homes and buy him a home. He doesn't even take the man on the road to his house and provide shelter for him there. But no, he sees that he's wounded, he bandages his wounds, he takes him on his animal to an inn where he provides care for him there, and then he comes back later to check on him. What this parable suggests, I believe, is that good is good enough. You see, I'm sometimes immobilized because I think that my words or my actions will not be perfect enough, will not be incredible enough to speak to the needs of the situation. What we see in this story is that good is good. Good is good enough. The third question that I see in this parable is the question, how's your vision? What do you see? Each of uh, the characters in this parable who encounter the man on the road see him first. That verb see is in there three different times. But for the first two people, for the priest and the Levite, when they see him, that moves them to protect themselves. The third character, when the Samaritan comes and he sees the man on the road, he's moved to compassion. Or another version says uh, pity. And then it's that compassion that moves him to action. So what do you see and what are you going to do about it? This parable doesn't call us to see things that we don't see. It doesn't call us to get glasses. It just wants to know what we see, what's in our path, that God has put there, and what are we going to do about it. Fred Craddock tells a story about his father. He says that his father never went to church, that it was his mother who took him to church. His father would stay at home on Sundays, and he would complain that the Sunday dinner was late. From time to time, the pastor of their small town would stop by to see the Craddock family, and he would visit with Mr. Craddock, and Mr. Craddock would say to him, Church doesn't care about me. I know what the church wants. Another name, another pledge. Another name, another pledge. 
From time to time, there would be a revival in their small town. And the pastor would take the evangelist by the Craddock home, and he would point to their home and say, Stick them. And the evangelist would come to their house, and he would visit with Mr. Craddock, and Mr. Craddock would say, The church doesn't care about me. I know what the church wants. Another name, another pledge. Another name, another pledge. But Fred says there was one time that his father didn't say that about the church. He was 73 years old. He was in a hospital bed. The doctors had removed his throat. They had said it was cancer, and they said it was too late. He couldn't eat, and he couldn't talk. Fred flew in to see his parents, and as he walked into the hospital room, he immediately noticed all of the plants, all of the cut flowers, the windowsill, he said, completely covered every inch with cut flowers and potted plants and a stack of cards next to the bed 20 inches deep, every last card, every last bloom from somebody in Fred's mother's church. His father couldn't speak, and so he picked up a Kleenex box and a pen, and he wrote out a line from Shakespeare. In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. What's your story, Fred asked. What's your story, Daddy? And he said, I was wrong. I was wrong. To see pain, to have compassion, and to make a sacrifice. Those three things. Those three things are the clearest expression of our identity as Christians. It's the truth about who we are. I've read the story of Jesus. I know the Gospels, and I know that those three things, to see pain, to have compassion, and to make a sacrifice, are the clearest expression of the identity of the God we worship.